Good evening, everybody. Happy Sunday. How is it going? I hope you had a great weekend. Hope we can end the weekend off on the on a good foot. Reading, as you can see, uh, California haunts here has shifted for the holidays. I got my Christmas tree back here. Got my fireplace going. And uh, again, like I usually say, you know, put put on your fuzzy slippers and uh, whatever is else you do to relax in front of the fire, and uh, grab yourself a hot cocoa or a hot toddy. And uh, we're going to be reading some creepy, some creepy winter stories starting today. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state. We also have branches, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii. So we can get to you, right? Okay. If you're watching from Facebook today and you enjoy what you're seeing, please be sure to hit that follow button and hit the like button and share it. Share it with uh, everybody you know. Let them know that we're doing this on Sundays, you know, where we read from a paranormal theme book every Sunday. Also, if you're watching from YouTube, uh, look down on the bottom right-hand corner, and if you haven't subscribed yet, uh, you'll see that little ghost down on the bottom down there with the Sherlock Holmes hat on and magnifying glass, and that's the way to subscribe. We've got more than 400 videos sitting over there, lots of topics, so there's always something to choose from that's something for everybody, Okay. And again, the people on, and everybody watching it on YouTube, as you, if you could be so kind as to share, like, share, and subscribe. Like, share, and subscribe. Because we're looking for subscribers, and uh, the only way to do that is to have people share the show, right? And if you're listening from any location around the world to the RSS feed, same thing. If you like it, uh, sit down and have somebody have coffee with you and listen to the show, right? Share, share, share. We're trying to get as many likes and as many subscribers as many followers as as we can you know youtube shows us no love and the only way to feel that love is to have people share our show that's the only way to get the word out all right tonight we're going to start reading from a new book we're going to you know, we've been reading about the salem wish trials but with the holidays coming and halloween being over I, i'm shifting gears you can tell i've got like i said i've got my christmas tree up back here and i've got my fireplace going so uh yeah it's getting exciting it's getting exciting so we're shifting gears and we're switching books. And uh, one of my favorite guests that comes on the show every once in a while is Sylvia Schultz. She writes a lot of paranormal themed books, and including the book I'm going to read tonight, which she so graciously gave us permission to read. And it's about darker Christmas, not so much Christmas, but winter tales, dark winter tales. So uh, there's a lot of variety in this book. And uh, I think there's, going to be some creepy stuff and other things that maybe you know we have have nightmares over but we're going to find out i've never read this book i'm going to, i'm reading it for the first time to you just as you hear it so uh let me open the let me get this going here i have a wish list too you guys want to my holiday wish list a new tablet <laughs> this tablet is so old i can't even get the new jelly bean on here or nothing <laughs> that's how old this tablet is there's no more room i'm surprised i'm even able to get these uh books loaded up on here so let me get this open. Takes it a few minutes. Like I said, the book is antiquated. Or this is antiquated. This is a Galaxy Note 8.0, by the way. It would be nice to get like a 10.0 or even get an um, iPad. But this does the job for the books, at least, anyway. And other stuff I haven't doing, so. And usually, I don't drink when I'm on the air. I don't mean drink. I mean, like, water. I don't, believe, I don't like that. I think it's tacky. 
But since this is kind of a casual day and I'm reading a book, and I gotta keep my voice like going, I will take drinks occasionally. Water, of course. If I took the other kind of drinks, I probably couldn't read this, right? <laughs> okay. So again, this is by our old friend Sylvia Schultz. She's been on a couple times, Haunted Peoria, different books she's written. She goes on a lot of ghost hunts and writes about them. But this book is a little different for her. This was written a couple years ago. Let my Kindle come up. Guy said it's an old tablet, so bear with me. Let's see. Okay. Is this showing my internet off? It's bizarre. Okay, it's not showing anything. Okay. So, it's called The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. So, uh, one more minute and we will get the show on the road. Uh, if you guys are interested in being in the chat room, I can look up and see the chat room. I see Maurice is in there. I see Pamela Schmidt. I see Pamela is in there. So, if anybody wants to join us in the chat room, that's cool. I will try to look up you know, at different times, and uh, say hi to y'all. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start now. It's 6.35 p.m. Pacific, and here we go. Introduction. It's the most, this is the right spot. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and it's loaded with ghosts. They say the veil between this world and the next is thinnest at Halloween, but there's still plenty of spillover. Let me kind of get this adjusted here. But there's still plenty of spillover at other times of the year. The dead of winter is a prime time for spookiness. December isn't just for Christmas. Hanukkah celebrates one of the miracles of the Jewish faith, when one day's worth of oil for the, tem for the temple lasts for eight days. Kwanzaa, too, gives a nod to the bright happiness of the season. Maybe we're so eager to bring light to this time of the year because it's, well, pretty dark, pretty bleak. Take away all the Festival of Light celebrations, whether religious or secular, and you're left with cold gray days, even colder nights, and those nights are long. For centuries, we've chosen to have celebrations around the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. There's something in our human nature that wants to fight the darkness. This book itself is a celebration of the weirdness that has swirled around the Christmas season for many centuries. Within these pages, you'll find stories to warm your heart, and tales to chill you just as effectively as, as a cutting December wind. You'll find creatures of Christmas folklore from ages past, monsters that will haunt your dreams far more than the dreaded phrase, batteries not included, or even the chilling, some assembly required. You'll also find some fairly creepy tales that just happen to take place in the darkest, coldest part of the year. Not all Christmas ghost stories have cheerful, redemptive endings, like a Christmas carol. Even in Dickinson's book, there's a fair amount of creep factor in the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Not all winter ghost stories take place beside a welcoming, crackling, cozy hearth fire. We've started to embrace this chance to revisit Halloween weeks later. In 2015, the movie Krampus made $61.5 at the box office. Recent years have also seen many commercial haunted houses realizing the potential of this out-of-season spookiness. There are now Krampus-themed haunted houses operating in Phoenix, Austin, Nashville, Denver, Green Bay, and many other cities. And yes, Krampus plays in Peoria, the haunted infirmary, an Illinois' top 10-rated haunt on the grounds of the Peoria State Hospital in Bartonville, switches gears in December and welcomes Krampus to its spooky halls. 
Even Disneyland gets in on the fun as the Haunted Mansion is transformed into a nightmare before Christmas themed ride. Most of these haunts are simply called Krampus, a haunted Christmas, but some use the holiday as a chance to get creative with, with groan-inducing holiday puns. The Fright Before Christmas, Santa's Sleigh, Jingle Hell, and A Nightmare on 34th Street are just a few of these haunt names. Chamber of Horrors in New York even lets you get your picture taken on Santa's lap, in case you're still planning your Christmas card. And for those of us who still feel warm and fuzzy around the holidays, some haunted houses offer a $3 discount for haunt goers who bring a toy to donate to charity. Some of these stories were collected centuries ago. Some of them were told to me by people who experienced them. All of them are true in the sense that they held truth for the people who were there and who later shared them with others. They were true at the time, and that's good enough for me. That is my goal in writing this book, to share all of these marvelous, terrifying, wondrous stories with you. The book is divided into several sections. For your reading pleasure, God, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen takes a look at the Victorians and their passion for ghost stories at Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas, or else introduces some bizarre Christmas customs and looks at the raucous side of the season as it used to be celebrated. He sees you when you're sleeping, introduces the monsters and demons of Christmas, and the bleak midwinter describes unsettling events that unfolded in the coldest, darkest part of the year. The darkest midnight in December is a look at tragedies that happened to take place in that month. Tis the season. It's a collection of ghost stories all through the month of December. And It Came Upon a Midnight Clear gathers ghost stories that happened on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. So decorate the tree, whip up some eggnog, hang the stockings, and don't forget to check under the bed. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. I'm sorry, good fright. Ah, my bad. All right, here we go. God rest ye merry gentlemen, the Victorians. So why tell ghost stories at Christmas? That ship sailed on November 1st, didn't it? Ho, 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 not so fast. Take away the brightly colored lights, the promise of a full stocking, and the breakneck shopping frenzy, and you have what is admittedly a very bleak time of year. December marks the turning of the year, the shortest days and the longest nights. For centuries, it was the perfect time to curl up with a good ghost story. In 1891, in the introduction to an anthology of Christmas ghost stories entitled Told After Supper, the British writer Jerome K. Jerome wrote, Whenever five or six English-speaking people met round a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. Part of this hunger for tale of ghostly revenants came simply from the time of year Christmas is celebrated. This went back centuries, long before the Victorian era. The Puritan leader, Oliver Cromwell, was also the Lord Protector of England, which meant that he got to make the rules for a while. In the mid-1600s, Cromwell tried hard to abolish the celebration of Christmas altogether. After all, he argued, nowhere in the Bible does it expressly say that Christ's birthday is on December 25th. As a matter of fact, shepherds in the Holy Land watched o'er their flocks by night in the springtime. April or early May. It wasn't until the 4th century that Pope Julius I fixed December 25th as the date to celebrate the birth of Christ. 
The Protestants also thought that celebrating Christmas smacked of Catholicism, which they were eager to abolish. So Christmas was a non-starter for quite a few centuries in England, unless you were in the Catholic minority. December 25th, as the date for Christmas, was not an arbitrary choice for the early Christians. Both Yule and Sol Invictus, the festival of the unconquered sun, commemorated the winter solstice. The symbolic connotations of these holidays coincided with the Christians' belief that the Son of God had come to the world. Pope Julius I simply co-opted dates that were already significant to pagan Romans and northern Europeans. Of course, this meant that the raucous pagan celebrations, the Saturnalia parties, and the topsy-turvy turnarounds got brought into early Christmas celebrations too. The winter solstice was also considered to be the spookier of the two solstices. Rather than long hours of daylight and a short night, the winter solstice marked the turning of the year with the shortest day and the longest night. Parentheses. The increased hours of darkness meant, of course, that spooks and monsters and things that go bump had a lot more time to roam the earth during the winter months. End parentheses. It brought to mind the death of the sun and the thinning of the veil between worlds. The Victorian Christmas celebration then, which already made heavy use of pagan symbols like Yule logs, holly leaves, and even Father Christmas, also embraced the holiday's nodding acquaintance with the supernatural. This helped to create one of the Victorian era's most enduring holiday traditions, the Christmas ghost story. Even Christmas games of the period held an element of terror. The popular game of Snapdragon involved putting raisins, plums, or almonds in a bowl of brandy and then setting the brandy on fire. Prayers tried to snatch a raisin, oh, players, sorry, tried to snatch a raisin out of the flaming bowl and pop it into their mouth to extinguish it. Another game had the players attempting to bite apples which were tied to one end of a stick. The other end had a lighted candle stuck to it. The phrase, don't try this at home, kids, had not been invented yet. Other games smacked of sadomasochism. The game of hot cockles involved putting your head in someone's lap while trying to guess who was hitting you from behind. The kneeler, who was it, put their hand behind their back, palm up. The other players took turns smacking the palm in an anonymous low five. Shooing the wild mare was a simple guessing game, which involved a whack on the foot. But after the brandy's blue, after the brandy's blue flames had died down, after the Christmas goose was picked down to the bones, after the last candle had guttered to a sullen yellow glow, then, ah, then, came the ghost stories. And what stories there were. The Kit Bag, 1908, by Elgernon Blackwood, tells of a man packing a haunted suitcase on Christmas Eve in preparation for an overseas journey. Mrs. J.H. Riddle wrote A Strange Christmas Game in 1863 about a brother and sister who spent who spend Christmas in a haunted house and witnessed the ghostly reenactment of a murder. And speaking of games, Smee by A.M. Barrage, 1931, is a real spine tingling. A house full of partiers are playing hide-and-seek on Christmas Eve in a big old rambling country house, and they discover during the game that an extra player has snuck in and joined them. All these tales and more can be enjoyed at Gothic gothichorrorstories.com One of the most famous Christmas-themed ghost stories is another tale of hide-and-seek. This one quite a bit more gruesome than the atmospherically chilling Smee. The story is sometimes presented as a true ghost tale, 
but it has been through so many inca incarnations that it should more truly be considered an urban legend. The following is just one of half a dozen versions of the story. The story is set, sometimes, at Bramshill House in Hampshire, England. Originally built in the 1600s, it was renovated extensively over the centuries. The current manor house was once owned by Sir John Cope, and it is his daughter, Anne, whose ghost now haunts the mansion. Anne was married on Christmas Day. During the wedding celebration, Anne suggested the guests all play a game of hide-and-seek. The guests all scattered throughout the huge country home. Anne scampered to a little-used part of the manor house, where, where to her delight, she found a large oak chest. She climbed inside and pulled the lid down on top of herself. It was a good hiding place, much too good. Fifty years later, some unsuspecting Cope descendant opened the ornately carved chest and got a horrifying surprise. Anne's mummified remains were still dressed in her wedding gown. Scratch marks on the inside of the lid were a gruesome testimony to her final hours. In 1953, Bramshill House was sold out of the family and turned into a police training center. Many cadets, so the story goes, have seen the lady dressed in a long white gown drifting around the mansion or caught whiffs of the sweet scent of her wedding bouquet. Sure, it's an urban legend of sorts, but it's also kind of a cool story. And as urban legends go, this one has staying power. Its origins can be traced back to before the Victorian era. The story can be found in a poem by Thomas Haynes Bailey, 1797-1830, sometimes called The Ballad of the Mistletoe Bride. The poem and the story illustrate the technique of setting a tragic story at Christmas it's a, it's a juxtaposition of a joyful time of year and a joyous occasion, which is a wedding, with the main character's horrifying final moments being buried alive. The Victorians just love this stuff. As far back as Shakespeare's time, Christmas was associated with wandering spirits. In Hamlet, the guard Marsilius tries to explain the sudden disappearance of Hamlet's, father, Hamlet's father's ghost. Some say that ever against the season comes, wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated. The bird of dawning singeth all night long, singeth all night long, and then they say, no spirit dares stir abroad. The nights are wholesome, the no planets strike, no fairy tales, nor which hath power charm, so hallowed and gracious is the time. Maybe Marcellus was doing his own version of whistling past the graveyard, or hiding under the covers so the ghost can't get him. But this bit of a ghost lore tells us a lot about the Victorian attitude of later years towards spirits. There were spirits aplenty running around Victorian England, but according to the lore, Christmas Eve was the one night of the year when ghosts were not allowed to roam the earth. Maybe that's why the Victorians felt so safe telling spooky stories on Christmas Eve. They could talk about ghosts all they wanted, with no fear of drawing unwanted attention from the spirit world. Another theory of the Victorian fondness for ghost stories is that people of the era were just glad to have a safe, well-lit place to tell those stories. The Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and early 19th centuries marked a move towards living in big cities. As England's population moved into urban areas, nature, and the darkness found there after the sun went down, became unfamiliar and frightening. People of the early 19th century had only recently gotten used to the luxury of having dependable sources of light after nightfall. 
Gas lighting was invented in the 1790s, and gas lighting of streets and buildings began in the early 1800s. Most streets in London were lit by gas lamps as early as 1816, but gas as a means of lighting homes was distrusted for the first 50 years or so. There's also a theory that gas fixtures themselves contributed to the epidemic of, of hang on, the epidemic of Victorian ghost sightings. There's a reason the bright interior decorating of the Georgian period, all that beautiful white and gold decor turned dark and gloomy in the Victorian age. Dark Victorian wallpaper hid soot better. Gas fixtures began to show up in city homes and manor houses in the mid-19th century, and sometimes they leaked gas and tainted the air with noxious fumes. A tightly laced corset was only one reason for a well-bred Victorian lady to faint. Another reason was lack of oxygen in gas-lit parlors. There's a theory in paranormal circles that gas leaks sometimes lead, led to hallucinations of wispy figures or shadows seen out of the corner of the eye. This would go far towards explaining the explosion of ghost sightings in the Victorian era. era. Whether or not 19th century ghosts were the product of leaky gas fixture, we have the Victorians to thank for a wealth of supernatural-themed literature. The late 19th and early 20th centuries saw countless Christmas gift books published that were entirely devoted to ghost stories. These weren't cheap dime novels either. These were classy, upscale publications of quality design and prestigious writing. Con contributors to these gift books and annually published anthologies included Edgar Allan Poe, Mary Shelley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Rudyard Kipling. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually introduced the character of Sherlock Holmes in a story for a Christmas annual. But the granddaddy of all Christmas ghost stories is, of course, A Christmas Carol. This most beloved of Dickens' works was written for a most unsentimental reason. The author had bills to pay. In October 1843, Charles Dickens was hurting for money. He'd gotten married in 1836, and he and his wife had already produced four children with number five on the way. Dickens had an almost pathological horror of being in debt. His father had been thrown into debtor's prison when Charles was 12 years old. The grown-up Charles Dickens refused, above all else, to put his own family through such a shame and degradation. He needed a project to raise some fast cash. He had an idea for a story of a miserly old curmudgeon whose grumpy outlook on life is changed by visits from three spirits. Dickens was actually recycling material he had already written. In the Pickwick Papers, Dickens wrote, The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. This told the story of Gabriel Grubb, a drunken sexton who chooses to spend Christmas Eve digging a grave instead of celebrating the holiday. Grubb is dragged off by goblins and has a change of heart after the Goblin King shows him a series of visions that prove his life is worth living after all. Dickens took this theme and embroidered it Instead of visions, Ebenezer Scrooge received actual visits from ghosts. First, his late partner, Jacob Marley. Then the spirits of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas yet to come. For good measure, Dickens tossed in a ridiculously sentimental subplot involving tiny Tim Cratchit, the kind of sickly poor child who the Victorians loved to weep over. He wrote the book in a fever of production. It was on his publisher's desk in less than six weeks and the gamble paid off big time. A Christmas Carol was released on December 19, 1843.
the original print run of 6,000 copies sold out within three days. Since then, it has never been out of print. Taking on a life far beyond the printed page, it has been produced as a play, a musical, and many movies, the earliest being a 1908 version by Thomas Edison. Dickens kept up with this fashion of telling ghost stories at Christmas time. Until his death in 1870, Dickens produced a number of Christmas annuals and invited other writers to contribute to those anthologies. With the success of A Christmas Carol, Dickens could pay off the debt that had led to its creation. Dickens was set for life. In fact, he was able to leave both his wife, from whom he was separated, and his mistress, an actress he met, independently wealthy for the rest of their lives. Not too shabby. Incidentally, it seems that Charles Dickens has joined the cast of spirits who populate his best-known work. In life, he spent time at the Omni Parker House Hotel in 1867 and 1868 while touring the United States giving readings of his works. He could be heard in his room practicing his delivery late into the night. In modern times, I'm just looking real quick. In modern times, guess, guess, let's see. Okay, guess who's still, oh, hang on. Just went down on me. Okay, didn't go down. It just it got smaller. I didn't mean to say it that way. Guess who say the Dickens suite reported seeing the ghostly image of the great author himself in a large mirror that used to hang in the room. The phantom would appear in the mirror, pacing back and forth, reading a Christmas carol out loud. When spoken to, the ghost would vanish. Many hotel guests also reported that the elevator would stop on the third floor of the hotel, even though no one had pressed that button. Was it the ghost of Dickens heading back to his room? The haunted mirror spent many years hanging on the wall at the hotel until it was moved a few blocks away to the Tremont Temple Baptist Church and now hangs on the second floor at the very end of the hallway. It wasn't only famous writers who contributed stories to these Christmas annuals. Folks who didn't have a literary reputation to uphold but who had an interesting tale to tell often shared their experiences with the magazines. A major McGregor shared his tale with real ghost stories, which was the celebrated Christmas edition of the Review of Reviews. At the end of 1871, the major went to Ireland to visit a relative who lived in Dublin. In January 1872, this relative's husband fell ill. The major sat up with the sick man, sick man for several nights until it seemed a corner had been turned. On that night, the major felt, felt confident about leaving the patient to sleep alone, and he himself went to the guest room for some much-needed rest. He told the footman to wake him if the patient suddenly took a turn for the worse. Then he went to bed. The major was awakened some time later by someone giving him a push on the shoulder. He came awake immediately and said, Is there anything wrong? He got no answer, just another push. The major, thinking it was the footman, got annoyed and snapped. Can you not speak, man? and tell me if there is anything wrong. His visitor stayed silent. The major, not wanting another shove on the shoulder, made a grab in the darkness and caught a human hand, warm, plump, and soft, obviously not the hand of the footman. The major asked, Who are you? But again, got no answer. He tried to pull the person towards him, but couldn't. I will know, I will know who you are, the major cried. He held the stranger's hand tightly in his right hand and explored the arm with his left hand. He felt a wrist and an arm enclosed in the tight-fitting sleeve of some heavy winter fabric with a linen cuff. 
but when he felt it past the elbow, the arm just stopped. The Major was seriously freaked out by this and dropped the hand he was holding. The clock struck two and the Major knew there would be no more sleep for him that night. The next morning, the Major told the household what had happened. The servants of the house had a ready explanation. It must have been the Master's old Aunt Betty, who lived in the upper part of the house for many years, and who had died at the very great age, over fifty years before. Not all Christmas ghost stories were published in magazines. Many families had their own collection that were brought out to be enjoyed and added to, and added to year after year. One of the most celebrated personal collections was written by Lord Halifax, published in 1936, and is still available today. His son wrote years later about his fond memories of Christmas. Quote, as long as I can remember, my father's ghost book was one of the most distinctive associations of Hickleton, which is the family home. He kept it always with great care himself, from time to time making additions to it in his own hand and bringing it out on special occasions such as Christmas to read some of the particular favorites aloud before we all went to bed. I well recollect my mother protesting, although I think almost inevitably to no effect, against the children being frightened too much. The victims themselves, fascinated and spellbound by a sense of delicious terror, never failed to ask for more. I myself would have been right at home with the Halifax children. So here, in the spirit of Christmas, and of the grand old tradition of the season, I offer this collection of true ghost stories. I hope it brings you just as much wonder and terror as Lord Halifax's stories brought to his children. We wish you a Merry Christmas, or else. Bizarre Christmas Traditions Christmas hasn't always been Tiny Tim saying, God blesses everyone. Centuries ago, it was more of a matter of every man for himself. It was a time of carousing, of turning the social order of things upside down. It was, in short, a time for shenanigans. Even in modern days, we still cling to a cozy Victorian ideal of the holidays. Say, Christmas, and most of us will reflexively think of a, a family gathered around a colorfully lit tree, a tree with presents piled underneath it, whether or not that imaginary family will get along with each other, without the lubricating effects of copious amounts of rum-spiked eggnog is another matter. But before the Victorians came along and settled things down, Christmas was not the quiet domestic holiday of Dickens, one-horse sleigh rides, and courierized prints. Instead, it was a holiday of boisterous revelry, sort of a mashup of Halloween, New Year's Eve, and Mardi Gras. The Romans started the custom of giving gifts at the solstice celebration. Winter solstice, being the shortest day and the longest night of the year, comes from the Latin for comes from Latin for the sun sand sill. Although the winter solstice was called Ruma, to distinguish it from so <laughs> I hate foreign words. Solsticia, the summer solstice. Saturnalia and Calendae were both well-loved Roman holidays. At Saturnalia, slaves were allowed the run of the house, and masters were obliged to serve them. And Calendae marked new beginnings. The 4th century writer Libanius had this to say about the celebrations. Quote, the feast of the Calendae is honored as far as the Roman emperor stretches. Everywhere is singing and feasting. 
The rich enjoy luxury, but the poor also set better food than usual upon their tables. The desire to spend money grips everybody. People are not merely bountiful to themselves, but to their fellow humans. A stream of present pours itself out on all sides. The colonnades bring all work to a halt and allow humans to surrender themselves to pure pleasure. Saturnalia was just one of the many holidays that made up the Roman calendar, but it was one of the biggest. The lower classes looked forward to the role reversal that came at the turning of the year. Household slaves, especially, jumped at the chance to be in charge for a while to be served by their master and mistress. Even after the fall of the Roman Empire, this role reversal at Christmas time continued to be one of the few perks enjoyed by lower classes. The custom of wassailing, or going door to door to beg for alms, began way back in the early Middle Ages. The practice continued all through the Middle Ages as a way to keep the social and political order stable. You think giving the girl who cuts your hair an extra tip at Christmas is a new thing? Think again. In medieval times, tradesmen would ask their customers for gifts or, or uh, gifts or, or largesse at the holidays, and sometimes they would threaten retribution if refused. A morning newspaper chucked under a hedge instead of being delivered to your welcome mat is one thing. To have someone responsible for guarding your house slack off or actively invite thugs to ransack your home while they stand by watching is something else entirely. This was a problem as far back as 1419 England. When the Corporation of London ordered the servants of city officers to stop the custom of asking for Christmas offerings from victualling trades, sometimes with menaces if refused. So the lower classes were discouraged from wassailing. That didn't stop them. Even the practice of caroling was frowned upon by the upper classes, both in England and later in America. Through colonial times up into the early 19th century, caroling was not the innocent, lighthearted practice we think of today. Carolers of yesteryear were not content to stand outside in the cold and sing, in the faint hope of getting a mug of hot chocolate and a cookie or three. Quite the opposite, in fact. Old-time carolers were a rowdy, often destructive bunch. Consider the lyrics to We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Now bring us a figgy pudding and bring it right here. We won't go until we get some, so bring it right here. We sing these lyrics without a second thought. But when that song was written, the singers were a lot more aggressive in their demands. They weren't kidding about it. Imagine that you are someone fairly high up on the social ladder, either in England or in one of the big American cities, Philadelphia, Boston, someplace like that. You're relaxing with your family on Christmas Eve. You'll wait until New Year's to exchange gifts because that's a great way to acknowledge fresh beginnings. For now, you're content to enjoy some quiet time with your loved ones. But you keep one ear cocked for trouble. And there it is, a pounding on the door. The maid hurries to open it, fearing it will break under the fists of the drunken hooligans. Your house clearly isn't their first stop in the evening. A half dozen thugs swagger into your front parlor, their boots tracking snow and mud onto your carpet. One of them, clearly the leader, calls himself the Lord of, of Misrule. He yells at you to bring out several bottles of your best wine and plenty of good food, cake, if you have it, and he knows you do. The rowdies spend an hour or so swigging claret and mashing cake crumbs into the doilies. But what can you do? You can't tell them to leave. It's tradition. 
They finally leave, and you breathe a sigh of relief. You're out a couple of bucks, since they demanded money too. And your parlor is trashed, but they're gone. That's over with, until the next bunch shows up. It's going to be a long holiday season. It's not too much of a stretch to say that Clement Seymour, with his poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, single-handedly turned society's perception of Christmas 180 degrees. With this poem, better known by its first line, "'Twas the night before Christmas," more completely upended the perception of Christmas as a time of riotous misrule. Instead, he introduced the character of St. Nicholas as the polar opposite of a lord of misrule. Instead of a bunch of rowdy young men burst, busting into the house uninvited, one man, Solo, comes into the house. He hasn't been invited in either, but he comes in silently, without the boisterous good cheer of the, of the wassailers, a good cheer that could turn ugly in a moment. St. Nicholas is obviously a member of a lower working man class. He holds the stump of a pipe clenched in his teeth, which as an affection of the laboring which was an affection of the laboring class. Dandy smoked pipes with long stems. Working men preferred to snap their pipe stems off. Also, he opens up a peddler's pack, but he poses no threat to the household. As a matter of fact, Saint Nicholas displays his own largesse. Instead of demanding gifts from the narrator, fine food and liquor, presents and money, St. Nicholas leaves gifts for the household. And most importantly, instead of threatening the narrator, we won't go until we get some. St. Nicholas expressly, expressly lets the narrator know he has nothing to fear. His appearance and behavior, although startling, are absolutely non-threatening. At about the same time Clement Moore published A Visit from St. Nicholas in, in 1822, Society's opinion was turning against public displays of drunken rowdiness at Christmas. It was, it was around this time that people began to buy Christmas presents for each other and for their children rather than making them. Although even then a handmade gift, or at least a handmade, a hand-finished gift, was much preferable to a completely store-bought Christmas. Merchants wanted to make their shops safe, appealing places, free from unwanted attentions of drunken revelers. Instead of being reported in regular newspaper articles, accounts of rambunctious gang behavior started to show up in the police blotter section of the paper. The boorish behavior frowned upon by genteel society was quite literally mar marginalized and then eventually faded. Wassailing had largely died out in England by the 1930s, even though the folks who used to, pra who used to practice the obsolete custom were still alive and well. Social programs by then were helpful enough that the poor no longer needed to beg, even at Christmas time. By the 1970s, though, groups in the east and west of England started up again, singing traditional wassailing carols and offering drinks of beer and cider from the wassail bowl. These groups do collect money in exchange for their caroling, but now the money is raised and donated to charity. One of the most puzzling and, to modernize, grotesque example of a Christmas ritual is the English custom of hunting, killing, and displaying of wrens. Wrens are the smallest bird native to Europe, and killing one has for centuries been regarded as a cowardly act, sure to bring bad luck down on the perpetrator. This belief goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans. The early medieval Irish writer Cormac of Paschal said that the wren got its old Irish name, Green, from Druian, yeah, Dru, 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 Druian, 
or druid bird. The ancient Irish used the wren for fortune telling, but by the 17th century, the Irish were killing wrens at Christmas. This was also a custom in the British Isles and in the south of France. Teenage boys would later, or teenage boys would carry a holly bush with bunches of dead birds and colorful ribbons tied to it from house to house, displaying their grisly trophies and asking for money. Later, the dead bird was carried in a box, and the wren boys would put on small skits or mock combats for the entertainment of their audiences. This custom continued through the 18th and 19th centuries. Most of the time, the tiny corpse was carried around displayed in a ribbon bedecked beer, but in England, by the 19th century, the hunters had switched to putting the wrens alive in a box. The box, too, was festively decorated, with colored paper or ribbons hung from the top, two candles at the sides, and glass windows at either end so the captive birds could be viewed. This box was slung between two poles and carried around to accompany the carolers. This method of capturing the birds alive took more skill and meant that the birds could be released safe and sound after Christmas. When hunting, along with caroling and wassling, was one of the several ritual reversals carried on by working class people in the 17th or 19th centuries. Much earlier than that, though, members of the higher social class were getting up to their own Christmas shenanigans, and some took it, well, a little too far. Most of the records we have of that medieval period in Europe come down to us from, church, from the church, as priests and monks were generally the record keepers of the time. By the 12th century, some of the clergy in France had developed a Christmas celebration that evoked the pagan merrymaking of ancient Saturnalia. They called it the Feast of Fools, or Asses, or Subdeacons, and it spread rapidly from France into Flanders and then to England. The point of this, originally, was for the higher-ranking clergy to practice humility by letting the lower orders lead the worship services at New Year's. Soon, though, it evolved into a general Christmas-time celebration, with the rites being changed to suit the burlesque revelry. As early as 1236 and 1238, Robert Grotesti, Bishop of Lincoln, had to issue an edict forbidding his clergy to completely, to completely upend the order of worship, never pretending to worship the demons. In 1333, John de Grandison, Bishop of Exeter, began a 30-year campaign to abolish the Feast of Fools in its cathedral. Apparently, the lower clergy talked to, talked to the choir, talked to choir boys into throwing mud at each other during, service, during services on the three holy days after Christmas. The congregation loved it. They dissolved in disorderly laughter and illicit mirth. But the bishop was not amused. By the early 15th century, the practice was no longer tolerated. There was, however, a much more endearing tradition, the choosing of the boy bishop. In the early 10th century in Germany, the junior clergy and assistants of cathedrals were recognized and honored by being allowed to hold procession on the three holy days after Christmas. Deacons on St. Stephen's Day, priests on St. John's Day, and choir boys on the feast day of the Holy Innocents. The children slaughtered by Herod's men in their search for the infant Jesus. This spread quickly to France and England and remained a custom throughout the Middle Ages. In the 12th century, the cult of St. Nicholas of Myra, patron saint of children, became popular in Western Europe, and this reinforced the popularity of the tradition of the Feast of Boys. The boy bishop was chosen by the choir boys, being one of them. He had to be good-looking with a fine singing voice.
The boy bishop was dressed in a jeweled mitre and velvet and velvet vestments embroidered with gold. He and his retinue paraded around the town, collecting alms in return for singing at monasteries, convents, and the house of nobles. Sometimes the money collected was donated to the boys' school. In other areas, the boy was allowed to keep whatever money was left after the cost of providing a large supper for his mates on the feast day of the Holy Innocents. As ritual reversals went, the choosing of the boy bishop to preside over services was pretty low-key. It was easier for the clergy in charge to control the boys and regulate their celebrations, as opposed to the rowdiness of adult tradesmen. Plus, this custom was less of a reversal and more of a reaffirmation of Christ's teaching of the spiritual relationship of children to the kingdom of heaven. He sees you when you're sleeping. Creepy characters of Christmas. As you lie there, snug in your bed, with sugar plums dancing a conga line in your imagination, keep in mind that Santa Claus isn't the only mythical figure that might be sliding down your chimney and creeping around under your tree in search of milk and cookies. There are plenty of reasons to be afraid of the dark in the deepest part of the winter. Let's meet the monster of Christmas. The monster of Christmas. Krampus. The demon of Krampus. Of Christmas. Krampus is perhaps the most familiar of the Christmas monsters. Creatures that make the Grinch look as cuddly as Rudolph. In recent years, he has become the grand old man of alternative Christmas celebrations. Krampus is a demonic-looking figure from Germanic folklore. He's got black skin covered with short black fur, a long lolling red tongue, and one cloven hoof and one human foot. He's half demon and half goat. And he revels in punishing children who've landed themselves on Santa's naughty list. Krampus sometimes travels with St. Nicholas to dole out punishments, and sometimes he just shows up to take matters into his own hands. Krampus is invariably terrifying, as befits a demon. He wheels nice whipping or the nice whippy birch branches with which to beat naughty children. Sometimes he uses rusty chains for the beatings. He also carries a sack for abducting the worst, the worst offenders. These reprobates are either carried off to hell or Krampus snarfs them down for dinner. To get on Krampus's good side, some people leave out offerings at Christmas time. Santa likes milk and cookies. Krampus prefers schnapps. In some homes, Krampus leaves a bundle of twigs painted gold, which is hung up in the house as a reminder to children to behave. Krampus is feeded on Krampusnacht. I hope I got it right. Krampusnacht, December 5th, which is the eve of St. Nicholas Day. Krampusnacht is celebrated in parts of Europe and, increasingly, parts of America, too, with parades and parties. La Bifana, Santa's tipsy other half. Move over, Mrs. Claus. La Bifana is southern Italy's answer to Santa. The legend of the Christmas witch says that the three wise men stopped at her cottage to ask for directions to Bethlehem. Being in southern Italy, they were woefully off course. La Bifana had the prettiest, cleanest, best-kept house in the village, and she was famed for her, gener her generous hospitality. She invited the, the Magi to spend the night at her cottage. Thrilled with the kind invitation, the wise men accepted. The next morning, they invited La Bifana to come with them in their church for the Christ child. La Bifana begged off, saying she had far too much housework to do. Houses don't clean themselves, you know. 
A few days after the wise men left, Labifana reconsidered their offer and decided that, yes, she might like to witness the birth of baby Jesus. Unfortunately, she had forgotten to ask where the wise men were headed. Ever since then, she has wandered the planet, searching for Bethlehem, leaving toys for good children and coal, and coal onions and garlic for naughty ones. There is another darker origin story for Labifana. In this version, she is a mother who had been driven mad by the death of her only son. In her delirium of grief, she heard the story of the birth of Jesus and became convinced that he was the reincarnation of her own lost son. She left home and searched for him. After months of looking, Labifana found the Holy Family and gave baby Jesus all of her late son's possessions. In return, Jesus blessed Labifana and made her the honorary mother of every child in Italy. Now, her grief healed, Labifana travels the country giving gifts to children during the Christmas season. Just like Santa Claus, Labifana enjoys a snack when she is on her rounds with a sack full of goodies. But instead of milk and cookies, she prefers a bottle of wine and boiled sausages with a side of broccoli. Although Labifana, like Santa, is a jolly sort, there is one thing you must remember, and that is that she doesn't like to be seen. If you catch her making your visit to your house on Christmas Eve, don't make eye contact with her, or she'll smack you in the face with her witch's broom. Frau, per okay. <laughs> Frau Perchta, another witch with an unpleasant M.O. Frau Perchta, a character found in Germany and Austria, may be based on an ancient alpine nature goddess. She can appear as a beautiful young woman or as an old crone. Whatever her appearance, she can always be identified by the fact that one of her feet is a goose or swan foot. She hounds out both rewards and punishments during the 12 days of Christmas, which is December 25th of January 6th. Good children can expect to get a few coins from her, but lazy folks are people who disrespect her feast day by eating something other than the prescribed foods of fish or gruel are severely punished. While she does have a bit in common with La Bifana, they're both old women who leave presents for children, Raul Perchka, Frau Perchta, I hope I'm saying it right, has a vicious streak. Yes, she rewards the virtuous, but she also has a unique way of punishing the sinful. She rips out their internal organs and replaces them with big handfuls of rocks and straw or rotting garbage. Yikes. Sant Lucia, patron saint of the poor and blind. In Scandinavian tradition, the Christmas season is welcomed on St. Lucy's Day, December 13th. Young girls, usually the oldest daughter in the family, wake the family members with breakfast of Lucas batter, currant-filled buns made golden and fragrant with saffron. The, gr the, the, gr the girl serves this treat to the family while wearing a crown made of holly surmounted by several lit candles. St. Lucy's Day is yet another holiday observance that emphasizes the triumph of light over darkness. In the Julian calendar, the winter solstice fell on December 13th, her feast day. St. Lucy is the Catholic patron saint of the poor and blind, and for good reason. Lucia lived in Sicily in the late 3rd century AD. A devout Christian, she longed for a life of, of prayerful chastity, but she faced an arranged marriage. Her husband-to-be happened to compliment Lucia's beautiful eyes, so she gouged them out and sent them to him along with a note pleading for him to take what he most admired about her and to leave the rest of her alone. Lucia, 
was martyred in 303 AD. But Lucia has a dark side too. In legend, Lucia was identified with Adam's first wife. She dumped Adam and took the devil as her lover, spawning a host of demon children. On her feast night, the longest night of the year, animals gained the power of speech, and her infernal children were free to roam the earth. The next morning, people celebrated with a feast of breakfast buns, saffron yellow, to acknowledge the victory of the sun rising on another day. Belschnickel, Nicht, Rupert, Ruklaus, Zwartipiet, the Dark Helpers. Belschnickel, I hope it's right, guys, is a character from southwestern Germany, German folklore who crossed the Atlantic and now survives in Pennsylvania and Dutch customs. He makes his rounds dressed in tattered clothes and raggedy furs. He visits children before Christmas as a reminder of what the season has in store for them. Like Santa Claus and Krampus combined, he carries candy to reward good children and a switch to whip bad children. In modern times, Belschnickel has mellowed and uses his whip only to make noise and remind kids that they still have time to clean up their act before Christmas. Sort of a warning shot off the bow. Technique. Belschnickel might have gotten his name from the German Belzen to beat or, or wallop, and Nickel for St. Nicholas. Net, <laughs> Net Ruprecht, I'm trying guys, Swarte Piet and Ruklas are underlings of Belschnickel and of St. Nicholas. These characters are all the heavies. Their job is to beat the bad kids while letting St. Nicholas or Belschnickel reward good children with gifts. Here we go. Net Rupert, <laughs> Servant Rupert, Ruklas, Rough Nicholas, and Zwarte Piet, Black Peter, all made their first appearances in German in German play in 1668. In the German play in 1668. This was around the time of the Protestant Reformation and the times that were changing. They were called into existence as the secular dark helpers of Christian Gud, the infant Jesus, then responsible for the delivery of presents. Since the general image of the angelic Christ child cannot be expected to frighten children into good behavior, menacing characters car carrying switches were just the tickets. Hans Trapp, Monsters Eat Whiny Children. Hailing from Alsace-Lorraine region of France, Hans Trapp was another anti-Santa. But instead of just being invented by grown-ups to scare kids into good behavior, legend says that Hans Trapp was a real man. As in the best fairy tales, he was a rich, greedy, evil guy. He ran afoul of the Catholic Church somewhere and was excommunicated and exiled to the forest. He would dress in raggedy scarecrow clothes and would snatch unwary children, drag them to his cave deep in the woods, kill them, and eat them. One dark and stormy night, he was in the middle of a cannibalistic child abduction, and he was struck by lightning and killed in the act. Presumably, his evil nature survived him to terrorize children for centuries afterwards. Pierre Foutard, Father Whipper. Pierre Foutard is a French version of Hans Trapp, also purportedly based on a historical figure. He was said to have been, in life, an evil butcher who craved the flesh of children to eat. According to legend, three boys from rich families were on their way to a religious boarding school when they stopped at Pierre Foutard's inn for the night. He lured the three boys into his butcher shop, where he killed them, chopped them up, and salted them down. The theme of a stranger danger is taken to the brothers' grim extremes in these cheerful holiday stories. St. Nicholas appeared in the butcher shop, 
resurrected the boys and took Pierre Fouchard into his custody. The butcher became St. Nicholas's servant and, like Krampus and Thwarpiet, was allowed to dole out punishments to children who misbehaved. Perchton, gender bender. Perchton is a dual gendered spirit who comes out during the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> Sean Burchton, Perchton, beautiful Perchton, is female. She gives gifts and brings good luck. Shy Perchton, ugly Perchton, is male and punishes the sinful. The Yule Lads and Grilla, demonic dwarves. The Yule Lads are 13 Icelandic trolls. They each have a name that matches their distinct personality, sort of like a baker's dozen of the seven dwarves. Some of the Yule Lads include spoon licker, pot scraper, door sniffer, window peeper, and sausage swiper, my kind of guy. In ancient times, they stole things and generally raised havoc and caused trouble for humans around Christmas. Yet again, they were used to scare children into good behavior. Later, though, Iceland borrowed the Norwegian Julianisi, I'm trying, Norway's version of Santa Claus, who brought gifts to good children. The two traditions became mingled until the formerly devilish Yule lads became kind enough to leave gifts and shoes that good children left out for them. All 13 of the Yule lads answered to Grilla, Grilla Grilla, who is their mother. In Icelandic legend, she is an, okay, she, she's an ogress who kidnaps cooks and eats children who don't obey their parents. She became associated with Christmas in the 17th century when she was assigned to be the mother of the Yule lads. According to legend, Grilla has three heads with three icy blue eyes in each head. She has horribly long fingernails that grow in grotesque claw-like curves and horns like a goat. Her earlobes dangle down to her shoulders. She has a beard on her chin that looks like a mass of tangled knotted yarn. She had three different husbands and 72 children, all of whom caused trouble for humans, ranging from harmless mischief to murder. As if the household wasn't crowded enough, the Yule cat also lives with Grilla. <laughs> the Christmas cat. I'm not going to say this name. I can't handle it. Jola Katorin. I think it's Jola Katorin. The Christmas cat. The Yule cat is not a is not a cuddly ball of calico fluff with a red bow around his neck, as his name might suggest. The fact, in fact, his main job is to eat you. In Icelandic tradition, those who finished their work on time got new clothes for Christmas and lazy folks lost out. To scare children into doing their chores, parents would tell them that the Yule cat could tell at a glance which children were lazy and needed to be eaten. They were the kids who didn't have at least one new item of clothing for Christmas. Huh, suddenly that itchy hand-knitted sweater from your great aunt Ruth doesn't look too bad, does it? Julebuck, the Christmas ghost. Goat, at least I can say that, Julebuck. On Scandinavian-themed Christmas trees, even today, you might see a straw figure of a four-legged creature hanging from a branch, a red ribbon around its neck, curved horns sweeping proudly over its head. This is the Christmas goat, and it serves now as a good luck decoration. Like the other creatures in our Christmas rogues gallery, though, the Julebach has followed a long and winding road to the branches of the Christmas tree. The Julebach started out a thousand years ago as a reference to Thor and his two pet goats, Gaptooth and Toothgrinder. Thor was Peta's worst nightmare. 
Every night he would slaughter his goats for the warrior's feast in, in Valhalla. Then he would raise them from the dead the next day to have them around to kill for that night's feast. Thor's callous but sustainable treatment of his pets was, was commemorated for centuries in a Swedish folk costume called Julafer, or the Yule Sacrifice. This ancient midwinter celebration involved an actor dressed in skins and wearing a formidable pair of horns. He was led into the room by two men who pretended to slaughter the goat while singing about it. At the end of the song, the goat jumped up, none of the worse for having his throat slit. The early Christian fathers were not amused by his obviously pagan spectacle, by this obviously pagan spectacle. They declared the Julbach to be a demon. The common people took this idea and ran with it. Tales from, seventh, from 17th century Sweden describe the dark and demonic Julbach roaming the countryside on December 25th, demanding gifts of food and frightening devout Christians. By the mid-1900s, though, both the Yule sacrifice and the demonic Yule goat were relics of the past. The Yule goat became a cheerful symbol of good luck rather than a terrifying midwinter apparition. Ma okay. Marie Lloyd Maud the Christmas Carol Singing Horse Skull. Marie Lloyd, or the Grey Mare, is a mischievous party animal. No, really, Marie Lloyd is nothing more than a horse's skull with a hinged jaw, decorated with ribbons and bangles with colorful reins in its halter. on its halter. The skull is perched on top of a pole and carried around by a man under a white sheet. Marie Lloyd, I hope I'm saying it right, guys, don't hold me to it, travels with an entourage of merrymakers who take Christmas caroling to a new level. The band goes door-to-door -door at houses or pubs because, they, because why not, and engages the inhabitants in a battle of rhyming insults, a young mama fight inspired by Dr. Seuss. In theory, whoever stumbles on a rhyme first loses, but Marie Lott is invited in no matter who wins, the theory being that she is so jolly and terrifying that she scares the paste out of any evil spirits that happen to be hanging around the place. She brings good luck for the coming year just by being in the house. In Celtic Britain, the horse was a symbol of power and fertility. Rhiannon, the horse goddess and the queen of the underworld, rode a majestic white horse. Horses that had the ability to cross between this world and the next were depicted as white or gray. Battles of wits, too, are common in Celtic literature. So the custom of parading Marie Laud in the streets of Christmas is sort of a mini-course in Celtic mythology. The gray mare, dressed in white, returns from the underworld at the turning of the year and engages the humans it meets in a rhyming battle of wits. There was a Christian church discovered just no way to turn Marie Laud from a right, righteously pagan symbol into a proper Christian celebration. So they denounced her instead, preaching against the drunkenness and body verses. Ironically, the practice of parading Marie Laude through the streets in search of booze and off-color fun had nearly died out by the 19th century when the Reverend William Roberts wrote his book, The Religion of the Dark Ages. In it, he warned against the dangerous shenanigans of Marie Laude and, hel and helpfully wrote down 20 of the most common verses, thereby setting the stage for a Marie Laude revival. The tradition of Marie Laude faded through the mid-20th century, but the cheerful nonsense has become popular once again in recent years. The Basque Giant Old, Old Zero is one of the 
Gentilac, a race of giants living in the Pyrenees and the Basque region of Spain. There are two legends of Olin Zero's origins. The first is that many centuries ago, a brightly glowing cloud appeared in the sky over the Pyrenees. It was so brilliant that only one person could look directly at it, an old man who was nearly blind. The old man interpreted the vision as a sign that Jesus would soon be born. He asked the local giants to throw him off a cliff so he wouldn't have to live through, through the Christianization. The giants did as the old man asked, but on their way back down the mountain, the giants themselves tripped, fell off cliffs, and died. All except all at zero. Another legend, one that makes slightly more sense, is that all at zero was abandoned as a newborn in the woods. He was found by a fairy who bestowed on him the gifts of strength and kindness and gave him to a childless couple who lived in the woods. This version of Olin Zero grew into a good man who would carve wooden toys to give to local children. He worked as a charcoal burner and would tote the handmade toys in the charcoal bag to hand out to kids. This Olin Zero died saving children from a house fire. When he died, the fairy who had found him as an infant granted him eternal life so he continued to bring joy to children throughout, through his gifts. Neither of these legends, however, does anything to explain the Basque tradition of throwing a sickle down a chimney to scare kids who refuse to go to bed. If children don't go to bed on Christmas Eve, they are told that Old and Zero will come into the house, snatch up the sickle, and cut their throats. Okay, guys, that is it till next week. Cool. What a great book. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Wow. Let me uh, close this down. <laughs> Again, if you're watching from Facebook and you enjoy what you, 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 and you like this book or you want to let everybody know that, that we're reading this book, go ahead and share it with people that you know. And if, if you are watching from Facebook, please be sure to hit that like button and uh, hit that follow button because we have, you know, up and down, right up until Christmas, we're, we're going to be reading these stories. Um, same thing with, um, excuse me, I'm trying to get my eyes readjusted. Same thing with uh, with YouTube. You know, not only subscribe and, and like, please be sure to um, share it. Share it with others because it's I, I think it's a really cool book. Anyway, I want to thank you guys for coming. I know it's Sunday night and you guys have to start getting ready for work and doing your, and, you know, taking care of business. But I really appreciate all of you coming and listening. And I know some of my pronunciations were off. I'm sorry. I'm bad enough I'm not good with names, but when I get into stuff like this, wow, you know. But it's fun to hear these these different Christmas legends. It's really, really fun. And I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really do. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Really cool opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. We're just trying to get the work out, you know, the, the work, the word out about about the show. You know, we're, like I said, YouTube shows us no love and and those of you that are able to get the word out is great. You know, uh, it's, word, it's word of mouth that's going to make this show a success. And so far, the last three years, you guys have really done a great job of it. We just want to continue to keep that rolling. I, you know, and I appreciate each and every one of you that come night, night after night to listen to the show or uh, the people or, or, you know, the, or download the, uh, the podcast of this show. I really appreciate it. But I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Tomorrow, uh, we'll be on at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Dale Jarvis. We're going to be talking about haunted Newfoundland. So that should be an interesting night. But again, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, I don't do this very often anymore, but you see that ticker running at the bottom. That's because California Haunts Radio 
is a well California haunts in general is not a for profit for profit organization even though we don't act it but uh, we don't take any money for our investigations so everything comes out of our pockets so um in other words if a mic breaks if a computer breaks or whatever i have to pay for it i, I own the company um just like the internet you know costs and everything else so i could use a little help to you know keep things going so if you could find it in your heart that would be great paypal.me at california haunts or if you don't like paypal i also have a venmo california haunts all the funds go into keeping the radio show on and the paranormal group out helping people with the paranormal, you know, with their paranormal situations. All right. Well, anyway, I want to thank you all. I will see you guys tomorrow. Let me get on my page here. Click my buttons. I will see you guys tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. for uh, Dale Jarvis and Haunted Newfoundland. Have a good night.